This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What is going on, Wildcatters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here today with Chris Powers, Vice President of CCUS at none other than Chevron. Chris, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me today. I'm excited, man. We've we've had some really good engagement. We've got uh, we've got Kelly in the room as well. We had some really good engagement with Chevron over the years, and so it's just fantastic to to have you here. There's so many questions that I have. Uh, really quickly, what is it that you do? Okay, so I'm Vice President of Carbon Capture, Utilization, and Storage, as you said. So what does that mean? Uh, so I moved into this role. I'm a chemical engineer by background, and okay. we'll, we'll cover that, I guess, a little bit later. But moved in this role about uh, 18 months ago now, and it, it was part of a new segment that we've s- stood up within Chevron. So we've got our traditional business. We call it oil products and gas, OPG, and a couple other segments we can run through later. But then we have Chevron New Energies, and it was stood up um, in summer of 2021 as a uh, as a sort of an internal uh, NUCO focused on uh, tackling the energy transition challenge as part of the broader uh, Chevron Corporation. So got three divisions, uh, Carbon Capture Utilization and Storage, or CCUS. We'll use the acronym now that I've defined <laughs> it. Hydrogen and then offsets and emerging. And then we also have a big renewable fuels business that we sort of share with the traditional business. So what is your actual role within that? What is, what is your what does your day-to-day look like? Are you just evaluating these technologies? Or are you trying to figure out how it like plays into a bigger strategy? Is it commercialization? All of the above. That? Okay. All, all the above, Jake. So, uh, you know, it's my, one of the things I love best about this job, it's it's certainly the uh, most intense, but also in a lot of ways, the most fun job I've ever had within Chevron. I'm a Chevron lifer, uh, joined the company straight out of uh, straight out of Rice. Um, but but we do so many different things, all the you know, from uh, certainly early project evaluations, both for our own assets, as well as for uh, CCUS or, or hydrogen delivery as a service. Um, to third to third parties, we also make investments. So uh, Chevron Energies uh, was the lead investor in two recent rounds. Uh, I'll call it growth capital phase. One with Svante, another one with Carbon Clean. Those are those are both uh, carbon capture tech companies. So we do a bit of that. Again, we've got projects from sort of the uh, the flicker in somebody's mind all the way through stuff that's moving in towards uh, pre-feed engineering. That's going to be a real project where we're putting steel on the ground here in a few years. That's super exciting. So, is it is it more uh, is it more commercial solutions today, or is it like a just like a ton of R and D, or is it kind of like a mixture? Of it's both? it's a mixture of both. So, okay. one of the biggest challenges within um, CCUS in general is it's it, it's certainly it's not free. It costs money to to implement this technology, right? Uh, the proverbial no no free lunch. So, uh, the there are existing I'll call it traditional technology or Gen One technology to do uh, carbon capture. But it's it's not cheap, um, and the capture piece of it could be you know your numbers vary depending on the project and the type. It could be seventy to eighty percent of the cost of sort of a full uh, CCUS value chain project is in the capture tech. So you can do projects right now uh, either where you've got a highly concentrated CO two stream already, for mm-hmm. instance, off of a gas processing plant like you'd see in the traditional business, um, or a few other applications. But to really tackle the market more broadly we're going to have to drive the cost of capture down. So uh, so you've got sort of the bucket of projects you can do in the here and now, and then you've got a, some, you know, bucket of stuff on the margin, but then there's a huge tail that is really going to require 
uh, technology advancement in order to monetize. And so that's why we're doing some of the investments, uh, both ourselves with the growth capital portion of Chevron New Energies, but then also partnering with mm. our tech ventures organization for the really early stuff, which is going to take uh, you know years to bring forward. I have so many questions. There's so many things I want to dive into. Uh, let's let's talk about your background. So you Perfect. said Chevron Lifer. You said uh, you went to Rice. Are you from Houston? Uh, from Port Natchez. I grew up in Port Natchez over in Beaumont, Port Arthur in the Golden Triangle. Okay. Okay. Uh, my uh, so my uh, been been there for a couple of generations. My my grandpa, my mom's dad uh, was a pipe fitter. Actually, a very okay. uh, blue collar background. He was uh, in the union on the workmen's committee. Uh, and, and it, I'm a big believer in solid, uh, blue collar jobs and, and really helping people to grow generationally. So, you know, he, he, he worked hard for many, many years, hardest worker I ever knew and a uh, big role model, uh, for me in my life. He's of course passed away now, but, uh, he was pipe fitter for Gulf oil. Um, and, uh, then my, uh, uh my, uh, uh, so, so he had, I clearly had my mom here in, uh, or in, in Port Arthur. Uh, my dad is a chemical engineer, same as me. Uh, he he grew up, born in Minnesota, grew up in Oregon, okay. and uh, he he had he's an interesting story. He uh, had a job job offers actually from Texaco, from Chevron, from a couple other companies, but did not like the West Coast, um, spe specifically the Pacific Northwest. A lot of people love it. I've been love it, but he didn't like the rain and the, and the sort of the gloom mm -hmm. uh, that pervades much of the year. So he uh, on a whim. Um, at the time, Texaco made him a job offer, right? you know, first, first one in Puget Sound. And then, um, then he said, don't, I don't want to be in the Pacific Northwest. And they said, well, how about we've got a place near Houston called Port Arthur. And he said, sign me up. <laughs> so, uh, so he, he, you know, sight unseen, uh, moved. I don't moved know many people who would choose Port Arthur over Puget Sound. <laughs> Absolutely. But it worked out well, otherwise yeah. I wouldn't be here. So he moved down, uh, chemical engineer in, in the refining side of the business okay. for, uh, for, Texaco, then Star Enterprise, and then Motiva, ultimately now, uh, also retired. Um, and then, so I was born there. Um, uh, sort of the, the oil and gas business, primarily downstream and mm -hmm. my, my bit of the bloodline. It's in, it's in, the, uh, it's in the sort of the family, uh, family DNA. My, uh, so you just knew early on. Yeah. You're like, this is, this is where I'm going. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, and loved. It's the usual story, probably. Loved science, loved math. What yeah. am I going to do? And uh, said, hey, chemical engineering sounds like the way to go. And so did you do that at Rice or did you do it undergrad? Yeah, did, okay. that, yeah that was mine. I only okay. have an undergrad, did it okay. at Rice. And then out, out of Rice, just straight to Chevron. Yeah, so did uh, – my wife and I are both both chemical engineers, actually both with both with the company. She's retired now. Okay. But, uh, but yeah, we, we uh, were lucky enough to get an internship. It was pre-merger. Um, I was in our sort of corporate engineering group. She was in our power and gasification group. And, uh, and then, uh, sort of did a couple internships during, during the summers and then got full-time offers right around, uh, the time of the Chevron Texaco merger, which made things interesting. Uh, they don't like to tell the story, but like the job offer got redacted cause it was from yeah. the wrong parent. And then, and then I got a new one, but, uh, fortunately, so started with the company and have been, been with it, uh, been with Chevron, Chevron Texaco and now Chevron, uh, ever since. Okay. So what, what have you done? What have you done within Chevron kind of leading up and anything, in particular that kind of sticks out to you? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I would say the, uh, epitome of Jack of all trades, master of none. So started in our, in our corporate engineering group was called the energy research and technology company at the time, but it's sort of, you could think about it as your yeah. corporate, corporate engineering and technology center and worked on, um, primarily, uh, new technology development, but it was really around heavy oil processing back in the days, you know, you go back, this is in the early two thousands 
we, you know, the era of easy oil is over and there's not going to be any more light sweet crude anywhere. You know, clearly this is pre, pre shale and pipe boom. And so we had a huge focus on heavy oil at the time. And so I got to work on a few early heavy oil developments. We got a, had a big development in uh, Venezuela called Hamaca and then really uh, some, some sort of next generation heavy oil processing technology. So it was really cool. Did that for a couple of years. And then, uh, um, you know, to be honest, I thought we, 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 you know, we've been in Houston for four years at, at Rice and then uh, moved into an apartment, bought a house in Meyerland and thought, okay, set up, never going to leave. This is perfect. We'll, we'll be here for a long time. And then uh, we'll never forget it. I was at a friend's wedding in Fredericksburg and got a phone call from our, uh, we call them our PDRs, but they're people who help early in your career move you around. And uh, Gary said, uh, hey, we've got a job opportunity for you in Adderall. Where's that? I and and that was the Never first question. That, that was the first question out of my mouth. I said, Adderall, where's that? And he said, it's in Kazakhstan. Uh, we've got a great opportunity for you and Heather uh, working on some really cool stuff in Tengiz. So, um, so we, uh, you know, thought about it, uh, told the family who was floored and said, okay, we're going to pack up and uh, give this, give this adventure a try. So, uh, in uh, May June of uh, 2005, got on a plane and moved to uh, moved to Kazakhstan, and that was the, the start of the story. I don't know many people who've lived in Kazakhstan. You might be the first. Yeah, it's 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 a wonderful country. Honestly, okay. we uh, we we so lived resident in uh, in Adarau, probably a couple hundred thousand people at the time. So it's on the Caspian Sea, on the north part of the Caspian Sea. And then we have a huge field. Uh, you've probably heard of it called Tengiz. Tengiz mm-hmm. Chevrolet is our is our uh, LLC partnership there. But this is just, I mean, it's one of the world's greatest oil fields, a super giant field uh, that was discovered, high H2S. So it's a real challenge to develop. And that's really, I think, what brought Chevron into it um, at the time. And so we've gone through uh, a series of developments over the last you know 25 plus years to really grow the field. Um, one of our biggest assets in the portfolio, but just one of the things I love the best was just getting to really learn and stretch yourself. And uh, the people uh, are, are just wonderful. Um, we've we've still got uh, friends from Kazakhstan. In fact, one of them, it's just amazing how sm- small world it is. Uh, one of them who was the G- one of the finance senior leaders there at the time, we were close. And uh, she says hello to me after an internal town hall. I said, Zamzagul, what are you doing here? And it's amazing how it's such a small world. So loved living in Kazakhstan. So so on on your path, did you did you kind of seek out or just kind of become interested in was it was it just newer forms of energy or was it like technology? Like how did you how did you land here? Was it were you voluntold? Like that's how in the Marine Corps it was like you get a new billet and it's like you're doing this. And it's like oh, Okay, I'm gonna do that. Yeah. So, or is it something you're like, I'm so into this and let's, let's So do this. I always love learning about new things. I yeah. mean, people joke at, at work, I'm a little bit of a geek on the geek side, right? In terms of you love the technology and all of it. And so that I think that's really how my career's progressed. I'll I'll jump through to connect a few of the dots. So we're in Kazakhstan for a couple of years. Then we got an opportunity to move to New Orleans, to work in our Gulf of Mexico business unit. Okay. And I never really worked upstream, upstream at that point. So had an opportunity to do a we call it facilities engineering, sort of surface engineering uh, job, and then and then I got uh, one of my one of my mentors, who's still a great mentor to me to this day, gave me an opportunity to to hey, I think you've got capability to learn the subsurface, so I'm put you in an asset manager job. So uh, took over a bunch of shelf fields that were, I mean, it was this was in sort of 2010, 11 time frame. 
uh, we were you know blowing and going. That's when oil price was was moving uh, moving north. Uh, a couple of rigs, workover units. It was just really fun. You sort of running your own business there, and that really wet the appetite. And then uh, then then got an opportunity to move to Thailand. Um, and again, it's a theme here is lots of different types of roles. So we had had at the time a uh, actually an EPC company that was a joint venture with a with a with a local Thai affiliate of a Singaporean based company. And and this is great role. It's basically the COO of the of the company said, hey, when you, do you want to take this? And I said, absolutely. It's a new challenge and new opportunity to learn. So I went over and did that. Get to live in Thailand too? Yeah, oh. lived, in, lived in Bangkok and we had a fabrication yard in, uh, near Pattaya and learned, learned so much there. It was, it was really awesome. And one of the key learnings for me that translates into this business a little bit is um, you, you were on the other side of the table a little bit. So like, you know, I'm still employed by Chevron, but seconded into this into this uh, EPC company, and I actually had to negotiate against Chevron. So the, <laughs> the guy, you know, so it's a little bit because we're a supplier for yeah. for platforms. So you learn a little bit about how is the other side thinking about this. So I think that that's helped when I think about engaging with service companies and others. You're just coming at it from a different perspective, and it's good to have that lens. I think the what is the average length at a job these these days? Probably what like three years or something. And everybody's kind of like swapping around. And so when you when you come across somebody like yourself who's who's a lifer. I think a lot of people have this preconceived notion of like, oh, I'm doing the exact same thing day in, day out for like a long period of time. It's going to be super boring. But you got to travel the world. You get to go to all these different roles. You get to learn all of so these much. different things. And so like you have, like like you said, like this, this breadth of knowledge on so many different topics and aspects of this business. Like I think it's safe to say that's why leaders of organizations like, like Chevron, I mean, just have so much knowledge about this business like you don't you don't get you don't get to the top without <laughs> do it, well, do i'm it, not at the top doing, to be clear time but, but yeah no it's it's i mean that's to me one of the biggest things that i look for in folks who you know want to want to learn or have a mentoring relationship is this growth mindset and yeah. it's i mean it's a little bit trite phrase but you've got to have that fire i think to want to learn to want to stretch yourself to want to grow especially in this in this new piece of the business but really i say it goes in the traditional business as well um that that's really, I think, where where you make yourself a better better employee, a better leader, a better a better overall just person is to really stretch yourself and understand, man, how can I absorb all the knowledge I can, figure out how to make improvement, and then I also believe, you know, you sort of it's it's this it's this growth curve, right? You're going to make an impact, and then then it's time for for somebody else to take over the reins of any given role, and then hopefully you get the right backfill, and then they're going to. Uh, think of things that you haven't thought of, and then and then really take the business to the to the next level. The next I level. just I can't think of another industry where you have that level of opportunity. Yeah, so a, a story I love to tell, and I'll leave out his last name. He's retired, but when I was a you know baby engineer, I was probably a year in. Uh, this was one of our called him a unit manager at the time in the engineering and technology company. I'll we'll just call him Kurt. There's lots of Kurts, and uh, he said. Uh, he said, I, you know, you guys are coming to a sunset industry and this would have been, you know, 2003 or something. This is, this is going to be a boring place. And, uh, you know, he, I mean, he was a, he, he was a Chevron line for very nearing retirement, but in that sort of doom and gloom mentality. Mm -hmm. And I said, you know, I got a different thesis. I think this is going to be incredibly exciting. Energy demand is going to continue to grow. Billions more people are going to be on the planet and it's going to take what we're doing today plus so many different new things. And that's ultimately, I think, what got me excited about new energies when we decided, hey, we're going to play a significant role in the energy transition because this is stuff that's going to be 
the next five decades from now. I can't think of a better time to 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 be in this industry. I think it's so exciting. I think there's so many there's so many new technologies that are being developed. The barriers to entry have come down dramatically. We've seen just in the last twelve months, AI is really six months wild has just eaten the world completely, right? And so, like levels of productivity, like every single one of us in the office have. ChatGPT or some form of AI open on a monitor at all times, and we're using it for such a variety of tasks, right? Absolutely. And you think of just like the implications for like your level of productivity and how much you can get done. I remember whenever I first got access to just like GPT-4, I did what I would equate to be six months worth of work in three days, for especially like really heavy lift creative work, writing very long scripts and things that would turn into something else. And I just did it in record time. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And then there's like, think about like engineering heavy jobs or where there's tons of math or there's tons of things that you can focus on more of the high value things that AI can't do. Bingo. Absolutely. I didn't mean to, didn't mean to yeah. cut you off, but I had totally uh, similar, similar thesis on this. I mean, so I, I was prepping for an interview recently, an internal interview I was, I was doing and I, you know, working out all my questions. And then uh, I had a good friend who said, this is like perfect for ChatGPT. Put in, help me think about an interview script for an interview with so-and-so. I won't say who it was. And, you know, it just spits out and I'm going, well, damn, I thought I did a pretty good job, but these are some really interesting ideas on here. And it's just amazing how quickly, how quickly you can do it. So to me, that's a huge opportunity is to, for, I don't, I don't know if commoditized for tasks that can be automated, move forward and automate it. And then that releases you to focus on, uh, what 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 you can distinctly add value to? I mean, a mentor. This is from uh, you know totally different context that he used in, but focus on the things that only you can control or only you can do. And it's the same kind of a concept with with AI with ChatGPT that can release so much potential. So with yeah, so with AI, you have all these new startups popping up. You have all of the oil and gas companies diversifying into different uh, energy sources, and so I'm curious to hear Chevron Steak. I think I have a good idea as to what y'all's thesis is for us. I, I, I don't like to use the word energy transition. I'll tell you why. Because I feel like there's a negative connotation towards, either, keep going. towards oil and gas. And I think that by the virtue of what we do, having people like yourself and, 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 and other leaders and startup founders come in here who are building the most cutting edge emerging technologies, I think we look at it through a scientific lens of like what is actually possible and what is not. And so they, that is kind of like molded our kind of worldview of like where oil and gas plays a part and where new energies kind of play a part. And so I like to adopt the whole thing of energy addition because I think Love that it. you build upon what we already have. And I think you move from being just an oil and gas company to being an oil, gas, hydrogen, CCUS, you name it, right? Company, right? And I, th I see that playing out with with a lot of different groups. Um, and so, yeah, now let's let's dive in all that. Yeah, for sure. So I, if you go back and look at my LinkedIn posts over the last two years, the term that I've sort of evolved to is I, I, I use a couple of them inter interchangeably, but energy expansion or energy evolution. It's it, same same thesis yep. because the reality is, and this gets into a little bit of our internal thesis at Chevron, it's an all of the above solution. There's no, um, you know, it's interesting. I'll, I speak at a ton of conferences and there is this minority that still says, oh, we're going to magically flip a switch and we're going to get peak energy demand and we're going to be able to electrify everything through renewables, that's just not reality. The reality yeah. is the world is going to need traditional hydrocarbons and more 
for decades and decades and decades to come. So I think how we think about it is um, you need a robust traditional business, traditional oil, gas, and products business. And guess what? That's going to likely grow over time too. It's been, you know, historically 80%-ish show the energy mix for decades and the energy demand uh, is going to stack is going to continue to grow. So oil and gas is, is going to grow over time and uh, there's going to be a place for uh, green power and hydrogen and CCUS and renewable fuels. So we're, a, I'd say, a big tent, all of the above company and believe that all those businesses are going to be required. Uh, some geographies, some, uh, whether it's a policy jurisdiction mm-hmm. or if it's just a physical geography, will will dictate which one is maybe uh, more influential than others in a particular region. But all of the above solutions, I think, is how how we need to think about it. And I wish, you know, to some extent, you know, lots of whether it's uh, uh, I'll call them, let's just call them stakeholders more broadly would take mm-hmm. a practical view on this. You're not going to be able to transition away from uh, and look, I'm, I'm the guy running the CCUS business within Chevron. Uh, the new energies businesses are going to play have a huge role to play, but you're not going to be able to magically flip a switch. Yeah, it it it. It just doesn't simply work that way. Yeah, the you know, and, math doesn't work. Yeah, and, and talking about you know uh, energy demand kind of just growing in, in perpetuity. It's it's energy is the base layer to modern society, and I think we get so caught up in our um, glass castle here in the United States, speaking from a place of privilege. Yes, uh, that we have energy on tap any given time, twenty four seven. You know, we have access to the internet. We have all of these uh, wonderful things in life. And I don't know the exact stat, but I want to say it's like somewhere like half of the world, like 4 billion people do not have 24-7 electricity, right? And so you think about over time as we're bringing more and more people out of poverty. Energy poverty. Yeah, and Absolutely. bringing them into a modern society, which is still a, – it's, it's a crazy, crazy concept until you've visited some of these places and you've seen how in 2023 some people are, are, are still living. It just shows you that there's still so many people that are going to be consuming more and more and more energy, and it, it, oil and gas is not going anywhere. And and we do need this all of the above approach to, you know, innovation is is absolutely needed. And you you have some people from within the industry that say this is a waste of money, right? Let's look at shale. How much capital did we torch to get to the point to where we're at today? There's a cost of innovation. Absolutely. Look at Silicon Valley. They need one company out of 10 to provide the returns for the losses of the, of other, the other nine. nine. Yeah. Right? It's the, the power law. So there's there's still so much work to be done. And I think it's exciting, exciting times because I think people are really prioritizing that. And I think that we found, I think in the messaging and everything, I think everybody's kind of taking more of a, a pragmatic. Pragmatism. And we're not swinging too far kind of one direction or the other. And I think that that's exactly what's needed. Yeah, I, look, I love your comment. I use a, a slightly different stat, but I talk about the, you know, the two billion additional people who are gonna, you know, who aspire to have the same energy standard of living that 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 we're privileged to have. And this is something I tell my 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 kids, my three kids. You know, I try to tell them every day is we're we're very privileged and privileged to live where we are, privileged to have what we have, and you've got to take a, a global view. And I mean, one one um, sort of personal. Uh, story that that sticks with me on this. It was back when I lived in I lived in Kazakhstan, and uh, I, I'm a musician. I play I play a French horn for what it's worth. And we had a little quintet, uh, a couple of expats with uh, a couple of the Kazakhs, uh, a few of the Kazakhs. I guess it's five. 
Um, and, uh, uh, we, so, so we, we do concerts and stuff, you know, it's low key stuff. We're not, you know, I'm not a professional, right. But, uh, after one of them, we went, uh, to, uh, to Golmira's her name house. And, uh, it was just, it was really good, uh, perspective setting on, mm-hmm. um, you know, this is a place where the water's outside, uh, limited electricity, interruptible electricity for sure. And just, it's like, okay, so I'm going to go back to my expat housing and it's a good reminder of how, how good we have it. And that all those folks want to aspire to a higher standard of living. And that's, that's part of the critical role we play. And one of the reasons I love uh, the energy industry is, is we're, we're delivering this super valuable uh, input to everybody's lives to market affordably, reliably, and ever clean. I wish there was like, you know, in some countries you have like mandatory military service that you have to do. I wish there was a program that was like mandatory, go stop in five different countries who have it worse than we do. Yeah. I did that. My parents signed me up for some missions trips as a kid when I was, uh, I went on two, 12 and 14 and went to like the worst parts of Mexico. Right. And at the time I didn't fully understand why they were doing this. And now I look back and it was the best thing because at 12 years old, I came back with a perspective that was like, I have it great. I have it great here. They didn't have electricity. They didn't have plumbing. They didn't have even have a roof over their head. They didn't have consistent food. Yes. And so it just like it, I don't know. I think I, I was probably still an unawful teenager, but I think I did have a different perspective on just the way the world actually works and just how privileged we are here. And I love, I love your, I love your idea. It's, However, you implement it, and uh, clearly that's not that approach isn't going to happen in the U.S. But I think it's incumbent on us to, to to recognize how how blessed we are, and and then recognize the critical role all of us in the industry play in uh, in, in in making lives better for so many people. That's going to make the world better as a whole. So let's talk about CCUS specifically. Um, first off, do you want to take a stab at defining what it is for those who are not uh, familiar? Absolutely. So. Carbon capture, utilization, and storage. So there's a, a couple of elements within. We use CCUS. We've got a U instead of just CCS, carbon capture and storage. So a couple of different ideas. I'll start with CCS. So fundamentally what that's about is taking CO2 molecules that come out of fired equipment, power plants, generators, et cetera, capturing the CO2 molecules, uh, dehydrating them, pressurizing them, uh, and then bringing them to a well and injecting it uh, thousands of feet underground uh, safely and securely for geologic time to lower with the goal of ultimately lowering the CO2 uh, concentration in the atmosphere. Okay. And then there's two, I think, predominantly, I think there's two methods to do that. Right? I think there's what, direct air capture yep. or DAX as some people call them. And then there's post-combustion? Yeah, post-combustion or okay. point source capture. So okay. happy to happy to dive into both of those. So uh, I'll start with point source capture. So I may, you know, my, this is my chemical engineering training. The easiest uh, element or molecule you're going to capture is really sort of in any process is the one at the highest concentration. So point source capture, we think if you if you sort of say I've got limited resources, whether it's capital resources or technology or whatnot, and your objective is to lower the CO2 concentration, you're going to want to go after the highest concentration largest streams first. And that's where I think point source capture um, makes a lot of sense. So what you're going to do there is target the large CO2 streams that could come off. Uh, it could come off 
as, uh, you know, gas processing plants, power generation, cement, steel, et cetera, the large point source emitters. And then you're going to install various types of capture technology to grab those streams, which might be between, you know, it's, I mean, some, some you know, some CO2 is already concentrated on a, on a gas processing plant. You're already in some cases going to have a nearly 100% stream all the way down to natural gas. Power generation might be at 3 to 4% CO2 in the um, exhaust gas stream. So you got a wide range of concentrations you're dealing with, but they're all far higher than, say, three to 400 ppm, uh, which is the kind of numbers you're talking about with DAC or direct air capture. So our thesis is the, uh, the, the, the first significant projects that are going to be the most efficient and effective to do are going to be point source capture projects. And then um, the real magic trifecta is when you have um, the emissions, then you've got the geology, and then you've got, uh, I'll say, the enabling policy framework, whether that's a regulatory policy or a fiscal policy, to enable it all to all harmonize and come together and make a project go forward. Um, and we, we can dive into those elements if, if you'd like so as we, well. So we talked about the CCS before we move on. What's the, what's the utilization? The utiliz- how, do you, how do you utilize CO2? Yeah, so utilization, people use the U in different uh, ways. In Chevron, when we talk about the utilization, we're really talking about turning the, the captured CO2 into some sort of a uh, ideally high value product, but at least uh, at least a, a product that, that has a market. So you can, it, I call it jokingly sort of CO2 to stuff. So it can be CO2 to, uh, there's, there's technologies to sort of mineralize it, to convert it into aggregates. So CO2 mm-hmm. to uh, input to cement or concrete. Um, you can turn CO2 into intermediates through uh, electrochemical processing. And then there's CO2 to finished products like CO2 to, to jet or CO2 to um, similar finished products. The, the unfortunate reality is that CO2 is a super low energy molecule. That's It became a low energy molecule when the hydrocarbon was combusted and released all this wonderful energy, which powers mm-hmm. the, the world we live in. The, the resultant molecule CO2 is low energy. So to do really most of these CO2 conversion processes, you've got to input a lot of energy. And ideally, it's going to be green power. Um, because you don't want to be contributing to the carbon footprint. So you're going to putting a lot of power to this low energy molecule mixed with some other elements or molecules and ultimately converting it into a product that can be reused. So a bit of circularity to it. Yeah. Um, the U, broadly speaking, I'll say the U is earlier days. So a lot of other technology companies out there that, I mean, we, we certainly are clearly obviously canvassing the landscape through a technology ventures organization and through Chevron New Energies to look for the right ones that have the potential to grow and scale and be successful. But broadly speaking, the U is earlier days. Um, we're going to have to do a lot of the work through carbon capture and storage. So we had a we had a, a company, and I hope I don't butcher this, uh, a company called, I think it was Earth In, and they presented at Fuse last year. And it was the first time that I'd seen like, how do you, like, you have all this CO2, how can you turn into a feedstock to be something that's going to be valuable? And so they were taking the, the CO2 and then I think they were putting it into what I believe is called a supercritical phase. Yep. Right. And then they were able to do something in like this closed loop system to essentially act as a long duration battery storage. Super, super interesting. And so that's one of the companies that I'm like, I'm really paying attention to because that's like a they pulled it off. That's a game changer. Absolutely. You know, an absolute game changer because then you take that and you're like, okay, well now you have, you have infinite amounts of C2, CO2 that we can capture. So you have a feedstock. It's all closed loop. 
the long duration battery storage changes the um, game on the on, on, the, on, on, on the renewables, yep. and everything, right? And so it makes those truly sustainable and being able to you know turn those on and off. So that's uh, yeah, super interesting. So okay, so on if so if you're injecting the uh, CO two into a well, is this a specially drilled well? Is this an existing just well bore? Walk me through that. Yeah. So this is this is the whole thesis of why. Uh, Chevron picked CCUS as one of the focus areas for our for our new energies business. CCUS leverages sort of three, broadly speaking, there's more skill sets that we have as a company historically over the last 140 years. You think about the capture side, that's process engineering and operations, oil field and refining operations. That's what that looks like. Uh, transportation, we do pipelines, we've done pipelines. Mm-hmm. And then injection and storage, wells and reservoir management. That's our bread and butter, Right. So, um, so you'll do, you know, if you walk through a project, you'll do the capture, the dehydration, compression, then you get to a site. Okay, well, what's the site? That's really the question you're asking. So two broad buckets of locations where you can inject the CO2 um, in terms of a geologic characteristic, and then we can talk about geographic later. So from a geologic characteristic, you're either looking for depleted oil and gas fields, um, ideally ones with Few well penetrations, the fewer well penetrations, the best because it's fewer things to manage, fewer risk to mitigate, um, or large, low dip saline aquifers. So that's okay. sort of the other broad category. So uh, oil and gas reservoir may be, may be more intuitive. Uh, you, you know, you've depleted a uh, formation that clearly has, mm-hmm. has, a, has a seal and integrity, and you're just, you know, you're reversing flow. Generally, there's a lot of uh, ideas around. Hey, can we reuse infrastructure? Can we reuse pipelines? Can we reuse wells? You know, it's complicated, I think, is the answer. And that all that has to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis because clearly yeah. one of our top focuses is you got to do all this with the utmost operational excellence because when you're putting the CO2 in the ground, you need to be assured that it's going to stay there uh, for, for geologic time. So outside of it, like obviously escaping and like all that being for not, are there any other risk associated with, with injecting that? Yeah. So we've been handling as an industry CO2 for, uh, you know, moving towards a century now. Right. And specifically within Chevron, we first pioneered, uh, CO2 floods. We haven't talked about EOR and we, we should touch on that in a little bit. It's an area where we have a little bit less focus, but we pioneered CO2 EOR in West Texas, mm-hmm. um, you know, decades ago, 19, you think about the 1960s kind of time frame. So I think you guys are actually one of the largest uh, water floods out in West Texas, right? Yeah, and we've, we've as, historically, we've rotated a lot of the fields out of our portfolio in the Permian and, recently, but had huge water floods. And, and steam s- floods in California, Steam right, floods in yeah. California, it's, we're, we're, have historically been one of the largest steam flood operators. I wouldn't want to quote. Yeah. Uh, so what's the difference between this and like a CO2? Flood? Yeah. Yeah. So on a CO2 flood, you're injecting the CO2 into an existing producing oil and gas reservoir with the idea that you're going to change the miscibility or somehow otherwise sweep the fluids and produce more oil and gas than you would on a baseline uh, uh, primary production approach. Um, And then some CO2 would stay in the reservoir, but a lot of it, you can think about it like a big recycle loop. So the, the, the complete flip here is when we're putting the CO2 in either the depleted oil and gas field or in the saline aquifer, we don't want to ever see it again. So you're putting it in. It's you're looking for formations where you have high integrity in the seal, ideally multiple seal layers uh, as you as you work, you know, from the surface down. And uh, then you're going to do that. It's sort of like uh, you know reservoir engineering in reverse. You're going to build a reservoir model based on the characteristics, your your delineation wells and your fluid properties. 
and then you're going to model and this is this is again it's the really cool stuff you're going to model where you're going to inject and where the co2 plume is going to move over time mm. and and then um and then as you start injecting you have monitoring wells it's it's just like history matching again on production sort of in reverse and you're going to monitor is the co2 plume behaving um as you would have expected and then you uh you know you tweak injection you might tweak how much is going here versus another another well just like you would in a in any sort of a traditional production operation but you're doing it in reverse you model that and then ultimately um, any given aquifer or reservoir will have some volume that's your target you're doing the uh, monitoring and verification over time and then you'll get to the end of life on a uh, on a particular asset you'll turn off the injection and then the co2 will will stay there and then um, over, you know, there's there's uh, one of the interesting things is how do you manage the the long term? Ultimately, the CO2 will it'll be modeled and we'll get to this end state. And then and then basically that that particular asset is done. And you've put, uh, you know, these are typically millions of tons mm -hmm. per annum over maybe 20 or 30 years. So you've put a significant amount of CO2, taken it out of the atmosphere and put it into the ground for, for permanent sequestration. It's really cool stuff. So let's uh, let's let's deviate just a second, just to talk about EOR. Yep. Um, I've said for years, you know, obviously we're not we're not discovering new Permian basins, right? And so the the question becomes on the oil and gas side, what is kind of the next frontier? And so especially me seeing a lot of new technology, I was like, I think there's two things. I think EOR is one of them, and I think the cost of offshore continues to kind of come down. Um, and then recently there was a whole article, it was like Exxon and Marathon and a couple other guys, uh, have all this new data on refracts and they're showing that the recovery rate is like double possibly what it was the first time. And so I think there's like significant advances. I'm curious if that's like EOR as a whole continues to be a focus for, for Chevron as like another frontier. Absolutely. I mean, one, one of the, uh, so I'll, I'll jump back into the traditional business where you found oil is is uh, this is a corollary to what you're saying where you found oil is one of the best places to find more oil right exactly. so anything you can do to squeeze more uh to squeeze more oil out of the existing rock or the existing asset is 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 generally going to be a cost effective and efficient way to do things so a story i like to tell I actually told this in a town hall last week in the office is you th to go back to your question on on uh heavy oil steam flood formations you know, if you go back and look at like our Kern River field as an example in uh, the San Joaquin Valley in California, you know, you see the production over time. It's all primary production. And then as we mastered sort of cyclic injection and then really steam flooding, you just saw this huge spike in the amount of oil that you recovered. And then you think about that area under the production curve over time, just unlocked so much more production from these assets. You're leaving way less oil in the ground and bringing more energy uh, more energy to to the world uh, critically needed energy to the world so things you can do to uh, improve recovery in the existing uh, existing assets absolutely is a key focus area for us and so you know steam floods a good historical example I think in the in the shale and tight formations this is this is clearly a key focus area for us and many others when you think about um, everything from how we're doing fracking, you go to zipper fracks, you go to refracks, frac, frac fluid chemistry optimization. Mm -hmm. I think there's going to continue to be many, many advancements uh, in, in that space that's going to help uh, ultimately release more production uh, from the assets that we have, have in the ground. All right. So going back to uh, CCUS, how does it make money? Yeah. So very clearly, CCUS is a policy enabled market right now. Okay. And I think that broadly goes for the new energies, uh, the new energies technologies or asset class in general. And, and 
I think that's okay. I don't think that's too dissimilar from how many of the uh, technologies that are and, and, and the um, assets that are in the market now, like solar, wind, it's how many of them started out with policy enablement to help help kickstart um, kickstart those technologies and turn them into businesses that are viable. So spe- zeroing in on CCUS specifically, uh, the IRA was a game changer in terms of helping to uh, create that right little bit of incentive to help get some of the foundational mm-hmm. projects uh, moving forward. So right now you, you've probably heard 45Q is, is the incentive that uh, is in place uh, to help uh, help get these projects moving from, I'll call it like a revenue stream standpoint. Um, broadly, our hope is that after the policy enablement, these are eventually going to evolve into marketplaces. And it, look, it's tied to one of our thesis within Chevron is we believe mm-hmm. uh, that a price on carbon makes a lot of sense. A well-designed policy that creates a fair and equitable playing field that doesn't allow the government to pick winners and losers. We, we broadly want a marketplace where the most efficient, and effective technologies will compete head to head, and those ones that are that are are the most uh, efficient, and effective will will move to the fore and will be be the leaders in the space. So right now, policy enablement is critical, and we believe in the future these will grow into more sustainable markets. So with so with the current uh, with with the current way it's set up, uh, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act, is it is it a you you capture X amount of, of carbon and and reinject that, and then there's it carbon credits or is it or is it uh, tax uh, credits or, or how does how does that work yeah so the mechanism it varies a little bit between so it depends on what role you play in the value chain okay. so if if you're an emitter um, you've got to decide am I going to install capture equipment myself and then take the 45q credit myself and then sell the co2 stream to call it like a, a TNS or transport and sequestration provider or do I want somebody to come in and provide me a full service solution, a full value chain solution, or can I do it myself? And it's interesting. We've got a big project called Bayou Bend, which is just really between here and, and Beaumont, Port Arthur. That's okay. going to be, uh, we think, one of the largest um, combined offshore, onshore uh, CCS projects in, in the world. That's um, really servicing the, the huge industrial corridor we have between uh, Houston and uh, Beaumont, Port Arthur, Orange. So when we... We, it's a bit unique for us because we don't really have large assets in this area on a downstream side. Of course, we're a huge mm-hmm. producer in the Permian, but here within uh, the Houston, Beaumont, Port Arthur area, we don't have a, a ton of downstream assets. So for us, this is around uh, generating a, a CCS as a service, engaging the emitters, and then working with mm-hmm. them to figure out uh, what what is the solution space look like. And so just to double click on your, on your question, um, you could have an arrangement where... Uh, we could come in and offer a full service solution. We can install capture equipment and handle the capture, the transport, and the sequestration. More commonly, uh, the the emitter will want to install their own capture equipment within their fence line, and then there'll be a custody transfer at the fence line, and then we'd be handling the transportation and sequestration piece. Do you do that as a service or a joint venture? Or There's so much uh, okay. commercial work to be done in this space. It's really fascinating, Jake. The... Uh, the, the commercial constructs are are myriad, right? And there's a way you can actually exchange the 45Q credit. That's an approach. Or if the emitter wants to keep the 45Q credit, it can be a flat fee fee per ton uh, that's 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 used as the uh, as the uh, transfer mechanism. And everybody is is doing it and thinking about it a little differently. And that's one of the things from my you know sort of my level learning the commercial mindset is you think about the midstream business, which is maybe a good analogy. The models are 
pretty consistent, but they've developed over decades and decades and decades. Mm-hmm. We're here in, in the infancy. It's really, uh, you know, sort of uh, nascent times. And so how is how is everybody thinking about it? How are think, folks thinking about it from a sh- is it a ship or pay or is it a take or pay? Um, you know, who's on who's on either end of this? Yeah. And what's the criticality of the interruptibility of delivery of the CO2 versus, um, um, you know, redundancy on the injection side? So all this were uh, sort of building it as we go. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the things I love is I think in general, everybody on both sides of this is taking a, a practical view, a pragmatist approach, knowing that, hey, we're not going to be able to solve every commercial eventuality here on day one, but let's get the bones in place so that we can start moving these projects forward with the uh, recognition that there are going to be ends that we're going to have to tie up over time. So with Bayou Bend specifically, is that something where you're capturing all of the CO2 locally or is it, I know you said half onshore, kind of half offshore. Are you piping in CO2? How does CO2 get to Bayou Bend? Yeah, great question. So just to set the set the picture geographically for folks. So the offshore component is a uh, offshore sequestration lease that uh, our partners in, and Chevron were awarded from the Texas GLO, General Land Office. It's directly south of Jefferson County, so south yeah. of Port Arthur Sabine Pass, just offshore. Um, then we have an onshore portion that's between uh, sort of uh, East Chambers, West Jefferson County, big contiguous block that's in sort of the uh, the prairie prairie land in that area. Um, and and sort of our hypothesis is emitters want uh, they want uh, redundancy, they want optionality, they want to know that hey, if there's uh, an issue and you discover maybe there's a fault that you didn't predict in the initial modeling. Maybe there's um, maybe there's uh, there's actually different policy frameworks on onshore injection versus offshore injection. Okay. So establishing um, optionality and then going to the market with that with that uh, you've you've got the, the I'll say the brand recognition. People know that Chevron can handle our subsurface. Um, we're partnered with two great companies, Talos and Carbonvert, which bring. Uh, interesting, different perspective. Talos, a much smaller oil and gas operator. Tim Duncan's their CEO, great, great partner. And he thinks about things from a different perspective. And then Carbonvert, uh, a, a, a CCUS startup, fundamentally, mm-hmm. private equity-based uh, startup. And, uh, you know, we all bring different skill sets. And then I think collectively, partnership is a key thing for me. Collectively, that partnership uh, really enables us to compete in the market. So what do we do? We go and talk to the emitters. So you know, you think about the classes of emitters. You can have um, LNG. I'm not going to name specific companies, but you've got LNG producers. You've got uh, industrial gas companies. You've got petchem companies. You've got refineries on both the Houston Ship Channel area and the uh, Beaumont Port Arthur Orange area. And 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 you're in you know you're in early days. You're flipping term sheets. You're trying to figure out okay how is this going to be a win win for both of us. And then ultimately, you want to get um, enough of those foundation customers that you say, "Hey, this is this this is going to go forward." We're uh, in, in, we're we're very bullish about this project. I mean, Southeast Texas is, I think, the best, if not one of the best, if not the best, one of the best places in the entire world to do CCS because you've got mm-hmm. the right mix of emissions, you've got some of the best geology in the world, and you've got um, I'll say a. a, a Broadly speaking, a group of stakeholders from um, from the uh, uh, governmental side to the community side that wants to see energy continue to be a critical part of the economy and the community for decades to come. 
So this is just building on the foundation of the traditional business. We've got the traditional business, and now we've got new energies growth that'll that'll provide jobs, uh, you know, for my kids and many others for the next next decades to come. So super super exciting times. So I want to I want to dive into the rest of new energies, but first I, I do have a question. I've heard things. I, I'm not out there um, uh, exchanging or, or trading carbon credits, right? And so I've kind of heard some grumblings from from certain people that that it's a very uh, analog, like PDFs are just kind of being sent by email. Has is that the case, or is there like a fluid marketplace of like I don't know? I would imagine that you would almost like serialize these kinds of credits, or they would have some kind of like watermark or, or like fingerprint. And there would be some sort of immutable ledger, yes. similar to like you know, you know, some blockchain. What what is this? What is the state of that currently? Yeah, so you're you're talking about, I guess, really the broadly speaking, the durability and the verif- uh, verifiability of the credits, mm-hmm. right? And, and clearly, there are different. I think what you're seeing is there are emerging different buckets yeah. of of credits that would be used in the offsets market. Um, you know, our approach is to make sure that we. I mean, we talked about this actually last week. Is uh, you know, one of our criteria we're looking at are we working with with credible partners, uh, good bona fides that we know are doing good projects, and these are uh, reputable, verifiable credits over the life cycle of the project. And you know, there's again, we could spend a whole hour on this, but uh, I've got a colleague, Barbara. Maybe you can talk to her sometime. Mm-hmm. She runs that piece of the business. But you know, you've got nature-based solutions. You could have afforestation, reforestation. You can have uh, you can have trees in Louisiana. You can have mangroves in Southeast Asia. You can have, uh, I'll, I'll say, a technological carbon removal credits, mm-hmm. like from a DAC, which we didn't really get yeah. too much into. There's there's so much in this space. Broadly speaking, I think getting the right framework and price in place, the right regulatory regime to ensure that what you know that you're exchanging is, is, is a quality credit is, is something that is important and will continue to grow in importance over time. Cool. Yeah, I just I was just kind of just curious what to say that. So, um, new energy. So obviously, we we talked about carbon capture, utilization, and sequestration. That's a mouthful. Yeah, I know you got hydrogen. What else are you guys working on over there? Yeah. So our our four big ones again: CCUS, which we've talked about, hydrogen, blue and green. I'll touch on that in a minute. Okay. Offsets and emerging. So offsets clearly has a linkage to the to the carbon capture space or or nature based solutions. Emerging, which for us means things like geothermal. Mm. Um, it could be uh, could be nuclear. A lot of this is earlier earlier days, hence the name emerging. And then we have a big renewable fuels business. So uh, if you want, I can touch on let's let's dive in all of touch them. on each. Let's of start with hydrogen. Hydro- hydrogen um, maybe has the closest linkage, especially with blue, to the CCS business. So two broad buckets. We're color agnostic. Uh, generally could you, could you define blue really quickly? Yeah, so listening? blue hydrogen, it would be hydrogen you'd produce in conjunction with carbon capture and storage, right? Okay. So you think about um, a natural gas feedstock, ideally a low carbon intensity quality feedstock out of out of the out of the Permian, as an example. And that's something where we have a clear value chain linkage. So you bring in a low carbon intensity natural gas, you're gonna reform it through either a <clears throat> steam methane reformer or an autothermal reformer. You produce hydrogen. And then you produce a, a, a CO2 stream. So for blue hydrogen concept, you're going to capture that CO2 stream as part of the process. And then you'll do the same compression, dehydration, et cetera, steps. And then you're going to inject it um, downhole at the, generally at the site or approximate to the site of the hydrogen production. So then you end up with a blue hydrogen stream that can be sold to the market or that can be converted to derivatives like ammonia and then, and then uh, used um, in markets domestically or abroad. So that's blue. Green is is what people typically think about as the renewable based or electrolytic 
uh, hydrogen production. So you'll take a renewable power source, solar, wind, whatever. Um, you go through an electro, take water through an electrolyzer, and you you basically decompose the molecule into hydrogen, uh, uh, molecular hydrogen, molecular oxygen, and then you've got that uh, that hydrogen stream that you can again either sell directly into the market, uh, liquefy, uh, convert to ammonia, other things, um, and deliver to the market. So we're color agnostic, sort of the again try to take a engineering and a, a sort of a, a cost business engineering technological lens to this. In some areas, it's going to make more sense to do green, maybe where you have abundant or prolific low-cost renewables and you've got good sources of water. Um, in other areas, it's going to make more sense to do blue, where you've got uh, you know high-quality, low-carbon intensity natural gas and you've got good geology to do sequestration and you've got the right skill sets. I think the U.S. Gulf Coast are going to see a lot of blue uh, in the in the sort of certainly for sure the next decade, next decade, couple decades um, because of the the great mm-hmm. abundance we've been blessed with in the Permian and other places. And, and hydrogen, really the promise of hydrogen, if I, if I remember my stats correctly, hydrogen is 2.6 times more energy dense than natural gas. And with the ways that you're describing about manufacturing that, there's practically no emissions, right? And so that's like, that's the, the yeah, promise you've of- Yeah, cap- you've captured the CO2 at, in yeah. the production process. Yeah. So hydrogen would be, you know, combusted to water, basically yeah. water vapor. I'm a huge car guy, and so I've been I've been following closely what is being said by auto manufacturers. Right, obviously we're going through this EV boom. However, if you go to Ford dealerships currently, there are significant amounts of Ford Lightnings that are not selling, and I think there's a, a couple factors that are kind of at play here. Uh, I think on the for one of the manufacturing process, a significant amount of these minerals are in certain places where we have a lot of tension geopolitically. Um, and I think that poses a lot of risk. I think there's also some ethical things with some of the things, not just for EVs, for cell phones, for anything that have batteries, yeah. particularly with the cobalt, right? And all the stuff that's kind of coming out there. Um, but you've seen a significant amount of, uh, let's use Hyundai, for example. Hyundai has come out. I think BMW also said the same thing and said that the future of our fleets are going to be internal combustion engines leveraging hydrogen more so than electrical vehicles. Right, I went to OTC. Saudi Aramco had a prototype internal combustion engine running on hydrogen. They are at their booth, and so I'm really, really closely paying attention to that. Hyundai is actually releasing a hydrogen-powered vehicle. I think either next year or the year after. That was a prototype concept that I think is going to be completely, completely game-changing and showing what's possible. Right, I think a lot of people naturally kind of get scared of hydrogen due to things like. The Hindenburg yeah. 100 years ago, you know, obviously, I think technology's changed a little bit since then, but I'm paying attention to the hydrogen space very, very closely. Have you heard of gold hydrogen? G- uh, yes. With Simvita, with yes. those guys? Amazing stuff they're working on. Yeah. So, so hydrogen, we could we could spend hours talking about hydrogen as well. And it really intersects. And when you talk about the, the, the vehicle fleet, it intersects with so many things. So I'll try to unpack a few of them and, and feel free to, to double click and interrupt on any of these. So look, I mean, I think broadly there's, you can think about light duty vehicles and then you can think about heavy duty vehicles. Um, I think, you know, the jury is still out clearly, uh, you know, electric vehicles have made big inroads on the, in the passenger mm-hmm. car market. Um, and then, and then you've got the heavy duty fleet, which, which, you know, will, will have its own evolution over time. Um, again, I, I like to keep, keep options open and, and see, see how, how the market develops. I do think, um, you know, and this ties to our renewable fuels business. Uh, 
liquid hydrocarbons or gaseous hydrocarbons are going to be a big part of the mix. This goes to your energy addition or energy expansion. So to just imagine it's going to magically all disappear mm-hmm. is is probably not a good probably not a good POV, right? So I think hydrogen, it's it you know generating those demand sinks is going to be critical to help enable the the production side of the business to scale here in the U.S. and elsewhere. So it could be light or heavy duty vehicles. Um, hydrogen to uh, to a derivative and used in um, uh, in the European market or in the Asian markets, for instance, hydrogen to ammonia, or it could mm. be uh, hydrogen um, through a LOHC or which or hydrogen carrier. It's a hydrogen carrier molecule, and then delivering hydrogen to be evolved back out into a gaseous state in the end market um, is is going to play a role. So lots. Lots of uh, innovation, I think, still to happen in hydrogen. I think it's uh, has the potential to play a play a really big role um, in in many different markets: Asia, Europe, U.S. Uh, over time. So, hydrogen to ammonia, obviously, ammonia being used primarily for fertilizer. That's essentially net zero ammonia, and there's a significant amount of emissions that come from things like farming. And so, the you guys call it synthetic fuels or biofuels? Or yeah, well, okay. renewable fuels. Renewable fuels. Renewable okay. fuels. Wow, major implications there. Okay, yeah. so let's let's talk about. Uh, okay, so hydrogen, man, super interesting. Um, what are you guys doing? In, in, anything in nuclear? Uh, nuclear is earlier days. Nuclear yeah. sits more in our technology ventures organization. Okay. So, uh, you know, th- there have been a ton of advancements. I love this space, and you know, I'm a, again an advocate of an inclusive, all the above approach. So they call small modular reactors. Uh, which uses uh, you know more of the traditional fission technology, but that's that's I think going to grow and scale over time. I mean, of course, the uh, the uh, the real breakthrough would be if somebody can really make fusion happen and, and really make progress there. And look, uh, we as Chevron, you know, sort of again evaluate this landscape and look for companies that have the potential to make significant breakthroughs as well. A lot of this is longer dated, so that's why again the pragmatist in me says. Traditional hydrocarbons, big role to play in the here and now and for the future. The new energies that we're focused on, CCUS and hydrogen, have a role to play in now and into the into the midterm future. And then you've got further evolution that's going to happen uh, in the long run. That could be things like nuclear or other things. And look, I just think that's part of the energy story. If you go back to uh, you know the dawn of time when the caveman first rubbed sticks together and we made yeah. fire, maybe maybe lightning struck, and then oh, this is convenient. We can roast some meat. And then you go to, uh, you know, to, to, to whale oil, to coal, to oil, mm-hmm. to natural gas. It's always been an evolution and it's always been an expansion. And I think that's going to continue, uh, continue for, for many, many years to come. Evolve or die. Yeah, absolutely. You know, any other technologies you're excited about? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the renewable fuels is one we didn't touch a lot on. But uh, th- this is one where I think you can you can get the double benefit of uh, it's a renewable, sustainable production. This could be, you know, th- there's and there's a broad bucket. Uh, soybean oil to 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 a product could be distillers corn oil to a product could be renewable natural gas. There's a there's a whole broad bucket there, um, but this is one that's got the double benefit of being uh, environmentally friendly and it can can go uh, be processed or ultimately used in the existing, uh, you know, the existing uh, fleet, if you will, right? So, you know, things are a little bit different as you you think about converting uh, some of these renewable-based feedstocks through refineries into finished products. The, the, the chemistry is a little bit different. You have to tweak things within the refineries, but it's, it's stuff we know how to do. And then you end up with a product that's, that's low carbon intensity, but that can be blended into the existing 
uh, existing you know, vehicle or transportation fleets. So I think that's going to play a huge role. Of course, we um, bought uh, REG, Renewable Energy Group, and it's mm. now, now branded Chevron REG. Uh, based in Iowa, and that's going to be a growing part of our portfolio over the years to come. So lots, lots in that space. And again, the, the theme here, I think, is optionality, mm-hmm. um, finding a way to let the most efficient and effective technologies uh, win in their respective markets, and then recognizing that this is not a substitution process. This is an addition process or an expansion process, uh, to use both of our words, uh, to, to meet the demand of, of, of the, uh, of the, the world. I mean, one of the things, you know, to go back to, to, to sort of why I got into this business, it's so fascinating. It's, it's a mix of, you've got technology, you've got, uh, geopolitics in many areas, you've got a critical need for society, for the world. Um, and, and then you've got the business aspect. You have to be able to ultimately make this business, you, the energy industry allows you to blend those three or four really special ingredients and have a really fulsome and fun career and work in so many different areas. And if you're if you sort of got an open mind, a growth mindset, um, you can you can do so many wonderful things in this business. And I'm so thrilled to to play just a small part of it. I, it's exciting times, Chris. This has been fantastic. I've learned a, a ton. You know, I think when you're looking at where does a lot of the innovation come, I think there there will be a few players who are who are totally new to the space. You have some brilliant people who do some stuff, but I think a lot of the innovation is going to come from the incumbents. And I think that we have the people, the process, the the history of powering the world, and we have some of the smartest people in the world working on things like this. And so it's super exciting to see what you guys are working on the new energy side. Thanks again for for making this happen. Thanks, Kelly, for thanks, for, Kelly, <laughs> for making this happen. Uh, this has been fantastic, man. Hey, thank you so much. And absolutely, maybe we do another one a little bit down the road when we've got some wanna, more progress to share. I want to see how things develop. We'll keep we'll keep things uh keep things up to date. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Have a good one, guys. If you like the uh, show, take two seconds, leave us a rating review, share it with all your friends, and we will catch you on the next episode. Come, 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 come.